Welcome to the first episode of Esoteric Artifacts. I'm Subash, this is my co-host Vlad. Today, we're going to be contextualizing some of the recent events that have occurred over the past several days. As everyone knows by this point, Russia launched a full-scale invasion on Ukraine uh, late Wednesday night at the US time. So, let's just get started with some of the basics and what we know so far. So what we know for sure is that Russia has obviously invaded Ukraine. By all accounts, the Russian forces number, I believe, 150,000 was the latest estimate that I heard. I heard, uh, yeah, it's like 150,000. So quite a substantial force from the Russian side has actually invaded the territory of Ukraine and have targeted key areas such as Chernobyl and Kiev and some other key figures and structures within Ukraine itself. Yeah, and uh, I just want to bring up real quick that we are not experts in this field by any means, but we have done a lot of research on this subject um, beyond just covering the news these past couple of days. Um, we have followed some of the events that led up to the situation over the last decade or so, and some of the broader context goes missing when you have a situation like this that's constantly is uh, clear information is not easy to find on the battlefield oftentimes. And, uh, a lot of uh, mainstream press sources are not going to be talking about the broader context of how we got to a situation where Russia wasn't looking I mean, especially on a topic like this that's constantly evolving, to some degree it's just difficult to keep up with the events that are going on and even giving context to these events can sometimes change over time. So we'll do our best to put things in broadest context as we understand them. Neither one of us have served as enlisted personnel in any capacity. We do have friends and have worked with a number of people who are enlisted and do serve in various capacities in a number of different regions. So we'll do our best to uh, keep you informed of some of the things that they are concerned about as well. Yeah, so you know, all things considered, this is really just a little bit unprecedented. Some would say this is very expected, but I, I think the, the scale to which this occurred is pretty unprecedented to me at least. Yeah, I think there's a general sense, I mean, just speaking for myself, that something like this was, was coming, and especially over the past you know, couple of months and a couple of weeks especially leading up to this, there's been a lot of talk and escalation in various diplomatic conversations variety of different nations. And so I think to some extent, like we were all aware that it could happen, but the sheer scale and abruptness that it really began with is kind of startling. Yeah. And it seemed like it evolved from people, you know, the usual suspects, I should say, in news media who are constantly typically advocating for conflict because conflict brings you know, revenue and viewers to them. Uh, doing what they do, and you also had on the other side, you had people basically memeing about this and uh, you know, taking it not very seriously prior to the actual launch of this invasion. But what I really want to talk about right now is uh, some of the historical context, in, mostly in the last decade, of why Russia had been so emboldened to be able to take action like this uh, in the first place, what they're speculating may be, um, because it's not explicitly clear, you know, they have not 
plans to eradicate all of the Nazis from Ukraine, which of course is an absurd statement. Yeah, there's, he's also done a lot of vague commenting and talking of the, uh, you know, Russia just historically, how Ukraine came to be. And there's been a lot of you know, discussion, well, not really discussion, but uh, Vladimir Putin's done a lot of speculating that the Ukrainians are pressing the Russians within Ukraine. I'm not aware of any historical evidence or context that supports that, but I have not heard uh, anything about that either. Uh, of course, I'm not an expert on Ukraine, but that, I mean, that seems like a, a very unlikely story in this situation. There's plenty of countries where minority groups are heavily oppressed. I have never heard of you know, Russians living in Ukraine being one of those groups. Ukraine was, of course, you know, part of the Soviet Union at one point, but the Ukrainian people have a long, deep, and rich history of their own and strong national pride in their own way, um, and a, a history that really, in certain ways, dates back longer than uh, Russia's in, in, uh, in a certain sense. And this really boils down to why did Vladimir Putin think that he could get away with this? And you know, my reasoning on that is, I think that the West took relative inaction in past aggression of his. I think that there was not sufficient action taken, and I'm not advocating for us to take military action after Georgia or Crimea, but after both of those uh, incidents, which occurred within the last, you know, uh, decade, decade and a half, meaningful sanctions were not imposed on Russia. There were pretty minor sanctions, and those sanctions largely only served the Russian government to insulate themselves a little bit more. They offloaded U.S. Treasury debt and started uh, holding more gold reserves, for example, and uh, they, they just started becoming a more insular economy. And economy is a big part of this because you need money to finance a war, right? And you need money to finance everything, and to some yeah. extent, economic sanctions really serves to benefit countries in the long term. I mean, just recently we've had you know, economic inflation and all sorts of other economic changes, but when you have sanctions like that, it really causes you to reevaluate and reallocate some of that in order to compensate. Well, so some of, I think what, what you're kind of saying is that economies get restructured as a result of long-term sanctioning. It doesn't necessarily change the behavior that we're trying to change or disincentivize. Right. What I'm kind of getting at, though, is it's, it, it is, generally speaking, a, a long-term benefit to go through a restructuring process like that. So something like economic sanctions can kind of push that along. Yeah, in, in a way, this practice of sanctions against countries like Iran, uh, against Russia, for example, kind of served to create a more global, uh, a big global rift, more similar to the scenario that we were in during World War II, where you have one power blocking the other. One, there's obviously you know, countries that are allied with the United States and Europe, which are economic powerhouses and are able to offer support and resources to other countries that are aligned with us. And then you have China and Russia have kind of been forming their own power block with their region. Uh, and countries that are more reliant on them for trade, and that's uh, I mean that's that's alarming for the future. 
depending on how this plays out, uh, you know, we could see potentially another another global conflict. Uh, I don't think that it would look anything like World War II. I think it would look very, very different, but it would still uh, be a, a conflict that could occur on a global scale nonetheless. And the way that happens is when you have uh, you know, long-term sanctions behavior, Iran, for example, had to restructure their economy and had to rely on no longer being able to sell their energy to European countries, and they had to sell largely to China and to other countries that are not bound by the Western sphere of influence. Yeah. So do you think that the ramifications of you know whatever continues to happen in Ukraine, however this pans out, like economically, you think that would be substantially different from like the Georgia Crimea situation? Well, it, it's already looking like it is, right? So, I, and that's where we can talk about was this a serious misstep on his part, or was this a calculated move where he had a pretty good understanding of the outcome? You know, people are speculating in all directions here. And uh, I'll admit, my original speculation was that Putin knows that he could take and hold Ukraine, otherwise, he would have taken this action. Uh, it would seem extremely unlikely to me that somebody who survived, you know, came up in the USSR, uh, was a KGB agent, and rose to power and has held power for such an immensely long amount of time in a very rough country that it's quite difficult to do that. You have to be a ruthless person to be able to hold power in a country like Russia, the aftermath of the USSR. When new countries are being formed, like that after the collapse of an old state, there's always a large power vacuum that's left. And that power vacuum really creates a scenario where the most powerful and ruthless person rises to the top. Unless you have a very, you know, a population that is very aligned in values and like a you know a new establishment of some sort of constitution, uh, kind of the way the American uh, uh, constitution yeah, I largely agree with that, and especially in Putin's case. I mean, he's been in power longer than any other substantial world leader. I mean, you know, we've got the UK, prime ministers, France, Germany, many European countries, as well as our own president here in the US, changes every four years. Sometimes the other nations change it more often than that. Well, yeah, I think uh, I, that's kind of just a result, of, a natural result of democracy is the pendulum swings back and forth far more often. Uh, I think pretty much every Large democracy has some sort of turbulence at this point. Uh, I may not be accurate on that, but I think the, the notable ones uh, with uh, large militaries in particular, I think they do. And yeah, it's, 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 so it's extremely confusing to me that a guy who has held power for as long as Vladimir Putin has would just suddenly make a ego driven misstep on the magnitude of failing to to occupy Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that it, I think it's too early to say whether or not it was a true miscalculation. He definitely, at least as far as I can tell, underestimated the pushback that he would actually receive from the Ukrainian people themselves. So the Ukrainian yeah. military itself, in comparison to Russia, is quite small. I mean, not that there's nothing to speak of there. Ukrainian military is actually quite formidable the way I understand it. But 
the sheer size of Ukraine is just too small to really put up a serious fight long term with Russia. Now, it's hard to tell, you know, how well or poorly either side has been doing in this conflict with all the media's communication and unconfirmed sources and reports that may or may not be reliable at this point. But I think it's really telling that the Ukrainians call on their people and such a, you know, long-standing and stout, nationalistic and patriotic sense that the Ukrainian people have, I think is really quite shocking to the Russian troops on the ground. Well, there's a real psychological component to it. And that is, the side that is fighting for their homes is generally going to have a lot more fight than the side that is trying to be the occupying force. That's, I think that's another thing that you know, indicates that Vladimir Putin may not have actually calculated this quite correctly, is that it's not very clear, at least to anyone outside Russia, what the purpose of this is. I mean, there's a lot of, he's done a lot of talking about, you know, the former Russian empire and, you know, Ukrainian sovereignty, but Russia itself stands to gain very little from a physical or economic standpoint in occupying well, it almost looks like Putin is stuck in this mindset that is not compatible with the modern era, right? In, in this current modern power dichotomy that we have, we don't just seize a country and take it and be able to hold it and not have any long-term repercussions from that, typically, unless that country is of very little consequence. And that may be the reason why Georgia was overlooked. Most people couldn't place Georgia on a map. Most people don't know that Georgia is a country. You know, yeah. if, if you refer to Georgia to most people in the United States, they're like, what, the state? Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's not a country that is of much, much consequence, no offense to the Georgian people. Ukraine, on the other hand, you know, large population, I don't know exactly, but I think it's over 50 million. And, yeah. and it's in Europe at the end of the day. So it is, it is part of the gateway to Europe of sorts. Well, I think, really also, I think in particular with the, uh, formerly with the Crimea and Georgia situation, it wasn't so much that it wasn't really of no consequence as much as it was always in conflict and not necessarily like military conflict, but geopolitical or even internal political conflict that it was just generally understood that it was a changing and evolving situation. So there wasn't much reliability in considering it long term. Whereas Ukraine has been a sovereign nation for several decades now. And, you know, is actually quite prominent geopolitically, especially with their location in the Eastern Europe. Yeah. And I think that a lot of factors had to the stars kind of had to align for this to even happen and the timing that it's happening, right? I think the U.S. has been projecting global weakness, geopolitically speaking, uh, with a really botched Afghanistan withdrawal recently with just a general uh, policy of sort of, uh, what's the word I want to use here? <laughs> I'm trying to be generous. But we, it's a policy of appeasement. Well, is, is and I think... I think what you were just describing with the 
pendulum swing previously, like I think that's pretty telling for the current state of the U.S. Like on a you know global scale, we certainly haven't been projecting strength with you know the prior administrations, even now with the current Biden administration and some of the more recent events, like you're talking about with the uh, Afghanistan debacle and some of the other economic issues. Like there are other issues at play here in the U.S. that we don't have the same, you know, global image that we have had previously. Yeah, and that's kind of interesting to bring that up because that really is, uh, that's been our foreign policy since after the end of the Cold War, was we really have no pol- no clear foreign policy direction after the Cold War, other than supposedly spreading democracy and democratic values and uh, maintaining peace as the world's police force of sorts. And that kind of ambiguous foreign policy is what's led us into a lot of reckless conflicts that are widely not supported by the American people now. Some of them you know, did have some support by the American people at the times so we engaged in those like Iraq and Afghanistan. But that's largely because uh, there was a lot of inaccurate information that was spread by the press at that time uh, about the reasons for those conflicts that was passed down to them, you know, from uh, a lot of, it was, it was passed down from the intelligence agencies and the military, and accurate reporting on weapons of mass destruction in the case of Iraq. And, uh, that kind of information changed the calculus for the average American, and they said, well, yeah, like, I don't want a guy like Saddam Hussein to potentially be able to have you know, chemical weapons or to be able to I think that's one of the things that's also really telling about this current conflict that we're seeing is historically, I mean, especially in the case of the United States and Saddam Hussein, it's the language and rhetoric, but also the premise for putting boots on the ground and intervening in almost any situation over the past several decades has been very heavily, at least in the U.S. case, targeted on atrocities committed amongst people. So in the case of Saddam Hussein using chemical weapons as a means of controlling and in some ways eradicating part of their populace, that's something that resonates really strongly with Americans. And we don't want to permit that, especially not here, but also abroad. That's something that we detest. And in Putin's case with this current conflict, he dabbled in that to some degree, but most of the rhetoric that I'm aware of kind of targeted on the Russian image and the history of sovereignty. Well, yeah, and it, you know, national pride is definitely a factor at play here. So Russia, of course, has felt emasculated as a nation since having the collapse of the USSR. Uh, you know, they're commonly referred to uh, in a joking way as, as a gas station and that's a pretty accurate judgment of them. But their economy is tiny. They're, I believe it's smaller than California's. Uh, and, but they have a lot of nuclear arms. They have uh, they conducted an extensive nuclear weapons well, research and the nuclear arms that both the United States and Russia have today are far more devastating weapons than ones that were used in World War II. One of the interesting things I was like, because like you're saying, they're so there's such a smaller economy than you might think for a nation of that size, while at the same time their economy is extremely targeted. I mean, they're a huge supplier of energy to the world, but 
also their military has been a massive, massive priority for them for a very long time, even before the collapse of the USSR. Yeah, I think outside of energy and some mining, uh, there's, there's very little that Russia does that is of great impact on the rest of the world. There's, you know, interconnected global trade economy that we have today. And that's why I want to talk about uh, energy markets is another big factor here uh, as to why we felt it's important to take this action right now with oil hitting above $100 a barrel. That makes it very difficult for Europe in particular to acquire energy sources from any other than one that they've become heavily reliant on, which is Russian natural gas. And that also kind of that plays into the Middle East conflicts as well, because, you know, Europe a little over a decade ago, had been trying really hard, Germany in particular, to get this pipeline built in Qatar. And uh, they really wanted to be able to purchase natural gas from Qatar, which would have required at the scale that they wanted to do it, uh, pipeline. And Germany, of all the economies in Europe, uh, I guess France to a lesser degree, and United Kingdom as well, but primarily Germany, is the big player here because they are a manufacturing economy. They make a lot of things and making things Spends a ton of energy. Spends a lot of energy, and this is something that I think we'll get into a little bit later with the sanctions that nations are imposing. But in order to generate energy, I mean, you almost require natural gas and fossil fuels, especially in order to just generate the sheer amount of energy that's needed to do manufacturing. Like we can talk all day about what it takes to keep the lights on. But three lights isn't going to build you a car. I do want to get more into that. But my my dilemma was when Germany first announced, I think it was close to a decade ago, that they would phase out all coal and nuclear by 2040. I, you know, I thought that was absurd. I, I'm not an expert in you know, energy development and uh, renewable energy by any means. But I thought to myself, I said, there's no way that a country with the energy demand that Germany has completely replace their high energy demand. I think at that time, coal uh, production accounted for like somewhere between like 45 to 50 percent of their total energy. But like you can't just replace half of your country's energy demand with renewables in even 30 years like that. Yeah, I mean, that's an extremely aggressive timeline. And I mean, I'm not particularly an environmental engineer, but my knowledge of engineering is made it pretty easy for me to keep up to date with the happenings in that uh, domain. And by any real standard, like renewable energy as a source for manufacturing is not likely on a large scale for at least 30 more years. I mean, anything inside that time frame is extremely aggressive from a manufacturing standpoint. Now, that being said, we have seen instances where phasing it in can help, Yeah, but 45% is not something that you can just whisk away in a matter of three or four decades. That's not enough time. So excuse my possible lack of uh, knowledge of the terminology here, but I, I think there's something that's called like a base load or base capacity that you require, and that's typically what's handled by fossil fuels that you can have your, uh, your any additional capacity handled by. So yes, uh, when you're 
when you're talking about energy capacity as how it is used and what is required for what you're using it for. So manufacturing, for example, would have a higher base load than, for example, keeping the lights on in a sporting arena. Yeah. Now, sporting arenas have their own issues with sound systems and a wide variety of other effects going on. But sure. they're not running heavy machinery on the scale that I Right. Have. In order to generate that amount of electricity that quickly, there is very few options outside of fossil fuels and nuclear energy that will actually according today. Countries that have managed to switch to a very high proportion of renewables, those countries don't produce much themselves. They are information and service-based economies and they have outsourced their production. Their production is being handled somewhere else. It's being handled largely in China and so all they did was they offset some of their energy demand by taking out the, that out of the equation. Well, and I think especially with regards to renewable energy sources and alternative, generally alternatives to fossil fuels and nuclear energy as well, but it's more, it's far more effective to offset the need for those than it is to replace them entirely. So, for example, we could burn far less fossil fuels if we use windmills yeah. for lighting and the lighter electrical loads and use fossil fuels for manufacturing and like the actual power that is needed to generate larger machinery. Would there not be some potential consequences if there is, uh, you know, anything that interferes with that renewable source? Like so, say what happened in Texas last year, yeah, so I mean, that is the, the largest drawback to renewable energy is you say it's renewable because it's based off the sun or the wind. Well, you don't have the sun or the wind all the time. And so the only acceptable, reasonable solution to that is to store it, which relies on battery technology. Yeah. And I feel like anyone in the engineering field should be able to give you a reasonable analysis of the situation in that Tesla has been able to excel in the electric vehicle industry because of their battery technology and the advancements that they've made. Now we're making huge strides in this area, but in order to store energy on the scale of a city, like take a look at a Tesla battery and see how big it is. It's the length of the car. Yeah. And it's heavy too. Right. And you're, that's to power one car for a couple hundred miles. You want to power a, manufacturing facility, just one manufacturing facility, your battery is going to have to be, I would argue, a quarter to half the size of that facility to even manage a couple days. I mean, possibly at the, the level of uh, technology that we currently have in battery tech. You know, I experienced this myself. Uh, our city has been mismanaging our grid or the uh, company that they've granted a monopoly to do that, I should say mismanaging our grid and I've had my power cut out for two to four hours at a time, uh, multiple times in the past month. I, what do I do? I go online, I start looking for battery options to see what is it going to take to run my refrigerator and my PC. Those are the only things I care about. Everything else, you know, can be unplugged or doesn't need to be running during that time. But my refrigerator and my PC to run for four hours would have been a six to $8,000 battery system. And that's just to get it set up. And then even that battery system in and of itself will only run for so long before you can charge it again. 
And so there's a variety of different ways to do that. But let's say the power is out for eight hours. You only have power for four of those hours. And then after that point, you have to recharge those batteries by some other means. Yeah. And if it's renewable energy, you're dependent on the current state when those batteries need charge. Yes, I gotta break out the hand crank at that thing. <laughs> Bust out the old yeah. tires. <laughs> but since we're talking about energy, um, Chernobyl, why do you think the Russians wanted to seize Chernobyl? Does it have some kind of strategic value to them, do you think? Or is it more psychological? Chern Chernobyl is an especially interesting case because the events at Chernobyl are, they're not secret. <laughs> yeah. Everybody pretty much knows that it was a nuclear facility and obviously had a pretty catastrophic uh, failure there. And since has been sort of this know, kind of horror backdrop for a variety of stories. But apart from the Ukrainian government and not sure how much of the local population has been able to visit or cares to investigate or visit Chernobyl, but it's extremely unlikely that there's any real strategic value there. Because it's not a population center, and that's why I was really surprised when I even heard that there was skirmishes going on to, you know, over who controlled the territory. It's possible that because it's not very populated or strategically important, that it would be uh, less defended and an easier target for the taking, where the Russian troops could actually gain a foothold and sort of set up a forward operating base. That's the extent of its strategic value, but I'm far more intrigued in why it was a focus early, because it seems to me that it's much more of a symbolic and psychological morale boost, especially for the Russian troops, but also for Putin and the Russian government as a whole. That's interesting uh, speculation there. I, you know, I can kind of see it with uh, the way this is shaping up. Ironically, all it really served to do was, I think uh, a prominent uh, either defense minister or some, uh, some foreign policy advisor Country shortly after uh, it was it announced that uh, Russians had taken over Chernobyl, they uh, came out on Twitter and said, This is a declaration of war against all of Europe. It really just served to galvanize Europe. It's kind of been softer on the rhetoric than the United States has been in the situation because, like we've been talking about, Europe is heavily reliant on Russian natural gas right now, especially as it's still winter. They need to heat a lot of homes and they still need to power a number of manufacturing economies. And with oil prices where they're at, they really cannot be, it's not competitively viable for them to switch energy sources uh, at this juncture. Yeah, I mean, it would, be, it would be extremely expensive and very hard on a number of peoples in Europe to have anything really affect their energy prices right now, especially given the time of year that we're in. But it's interesting especially as that psychological symbol, because it seemed like an early target and key focus for the Russian invasion force, while at the same time, the effect of them having seized Chernobyl 
really seems to have galvanized Europe far more than it has given a morale boost to the Russian state. It, it definitely looks that way from us on the outside. But, you know, all things considered, the Ukrainians are putting up a very respectable fight here. And uh, I think uh, their head of state did the correct move by offering arms to any Ukrainian citizen that wanted them to fight for their home. I think President Zelensky has been absolutely spectacular since the events of this past week. I mean, he was given an opportunity for the United States, I'm sure, among other nations, to help him and other leadership evacuate Ukraine. And they've gone out and had multiple public events and have stood by their country and their people and have supported their country and their people by providing them with anything that they can manage in order to help and work together as a group against this massive invasion. Oh, okay. So he's been absolutely pivotal in this. When you compare his reaction and the stances and the strength that he's positioned himself with, even in the face of invasion from a superior military force, and you compare that to Ashraf Ghani in Afghanistan, you know, right. our, our puppet leader there, he fled the country with all his money immediately. Right. <laughs> he was like, he was not going to put up a fight against the Taliban, even though he had Billions of dollars in U.S. armaments, decades of us training their military personnel, and uh, he didn't want to put any resistance. And at the first sign of trouble, he left and left essentially all of the people to fend for themselves, whether they were, you know, for or against or indifferent to the Taliban. They were left to fend for themselves without any of the resources that he had available to assist them. I think if, uh, sorry, what's his name? Zelensky? Zelensky. Zelensky. Yeah, I was. Uh, I, it, so. I might be pronouncing No, no, I think, I think you're pronouncing it correctly. I think so. Uh, if Zelensky had, you know, acted with a fraction of the weakness that Ghani did, I think the Ukraine would have fallen by now. I think that it would have absolutely crushed morale for the people to see their leader you know, flee the country. Or it's it's difficult to say that. I mean, culturally speaking, the Middle East and you know Eastern Europe are quite different. And it's difficult to evaluate or even guess at the effect of that. But certainly projecting strength, especially in the way and the level of consistency that he did it, is massive for not only the morale, but also the Ukrainian people's confidence that their leadership isn't just going to walk away and be a puppet of anyone. Like, he's standing up and claiming... Ukrainian state and Ukrainian people as his objective and his goal to defend and protect and support them. And that's exactly what a president should do. I agree. So let's recap real quick. So from Vladimir Putin's perspective, he saw a heavily inflated energy market, you know, global economic instability caused by, uh, you know, the lockdowns of the past couple of years and uh, the outbreak of the virus and he, so he saw that that weakness from that side uh, he of course saw some relative inaction from his past uh, incursions into other countries and annexation of territories that were uh, held by sovereign countries but were like you mentioned uh, regions that were in conflict for a longer period of time and and he also knew that Europe would be heavily dependent on him still for natural gas which is Russia's only commodity that matters 
as that Saudi Qatar pipeline was never able to build because uh, Syria stood in the way of that. So all that considered, he looked at the situation that it's now or never. That's what it looks like, right? Yeah, it's essentially a uh, opportunistic move to try and take advantage of the situation and. Like you're pointing out with the natural gas, I believe it makes up almost a third of all the power generated across Europe. Now that's yeah, six close to that. That's yeah. spread across a number of countries, yeah. but that's a massive hole that can't be filled in any timely manner, even over a couple of years. So I think this is a very calculated move as far as timing goes. But I also think there's a number of other forces that weren't properly evaluated. And I think that's reflected in some of reports and the, I'll call it lack of reliability or confirmation, let's say, in media and some of the reports on both sides. Well, and this is an area where I think uh, a lot of people don't really understand how this works with regards to being able to scale up production capacity of an energy source. Um, so I can kind of explain this from a manufacturing point of view. Scaling up manufacturing operations is not an easy thing to do. There's not just a simple switch you can of our production 20%. It's not really feasible. You know, generally these production facilities or refineries, regardless of what sector it's in, they are, are generally structured to be running almost 24-7, right? Any any downtime they have is typically reserved for maintenance time or for you know the little uh, off time that their staff has, but purely out of necessity. Yeah, yeah. These facilities run, you know, three eight-hour shifts or two ten-hour shifts with a couple hours of time regardless of what industry it's in they cannot just easily up the production even the united states can't easily up our production and actually our energy production levels uh have hit we're now at a new uh high surprisingly we, we took a little bit of a dip uh start of last year uh, sorry at the start of this year yeah, no I, I was right originally I we're year. in 2022 now at the start of 2021 uh, we took uh, quite a bit of a dip in production compared to 2019, but we have recovered past that point at this point. And the Keystone XL pipeline was canceled, and that, but that was not set to be operating for, I think, two or three years. Well, yeah, I, well, I think that's yeah. a good example of exactly how long it takes for some of these things to ramp up. I mean, just from a manufacturing perspective, like it takes several years to build the building, make sure that everything's up to code. You then have to bring in equipment. Then you have to train personnel to work on said equipment. I mean, just for the example this year, they're breaking ground and supposed to be setting up uh, new Intel semiconductor manufacturing facilities. And I think those are projected to be five or six years before they're even remotely operational. Yeah, I, heard, I think for a chip fabrication facility, it's uh, I've, heard, I've heard five to six years is going on for uh, full scale production. And that's crazy to me and that's this is a large scale operation so i believe that's uh, going to be the largest uh one of the most expensive of these uh, chip fabrication facility in the world well i think it's going to be the largest one at least in the midwest of the united states probably in the united states at large as far as semiconductor 20 million dollar facility yeah i would imagine it's, well, uh, yeah actually i forget whether it's one facility or i believe it's two facilities and then they're actually standing up so i actually went out and saw the land uh, that they're located at um, Machinist uh, that I've worked with in the past that I, uh, I contract out for some work uh, happens to have land across the street from where they're putting 
Twitch. So, so conveniently, he's, he's, he's a lucky guy right now, I, I should say. But yeah, manufacturing cannot just be scaled up that easily, and that's uh, that may be one of the reasons that uh, one of the factors that plays in his calculations here in terms of determining when he should move forward with this invasion. And another uh, thing that I wanted to talk about is. You hear a lot of speculation. This is something that I've been talking about for a couple of years as well, uh, of China doing something very similar with Taiwan. Yes, and China and Taiwan is exceptionally interesting given China's initial response to the Russian invasion. So, you know, I don't know if you all have heard or even if you've been following this very closely, but with the UN Council, um, when they actually met to, let's call it, uh, rebuke Russia for this invasion, China actually abstained. Yeah. Which I found very interesting and very telling that they're not really interested in coming out for or against either side, but at the same time, they're not willing to do anything. No, seriously. Well, yeah, so there's two things there. For one, the Chinese foreign minister um, actually, like, kind of sass a reporter or somebody who was asking her this question um, on would China you know, outright uh, you know, state that they don't condone Russia's actions here. And she, she, she kept deflecting initially, but she was asked the question multiple times. And uh, by the third time she asked it, she basically like flipped the script and flipped it back on the United States and said, like, said well, like, maybe you guys should look at why you escalate the situation. And I, I'm not saying that there's no, you know, no responsibility. Oh, of course, European and American diplomacy here. I think a lot of it is, has been mishandled, but clearly the offender here and the aggressor is Russia with no basis, pretty clearly. And I think from just a geopolitical standpoint, from the Chinese perspective, this is exactly what they want to happen. So from China's perspective, they have effectively, I mean, they have actually been sending aircraft into Taiwanese airspace pretty systematically for almost five years now. Uh, yeah, I, I, I heard a report about that happening this past weekend, and uh, sorry, this weekend, and I thought that it was unusual, and then, you know, like you said, I read that they've been well, it's, consistently been testing the waters in this area. They've consistently been testing the waters, and what I think is really telling is that Taiwan actually scrambled their air force this time. Because what's really interesting is Taiwan's in a very similar situation to Ukraine, at least as diplomatically speaking. Yes. So there's a lot of general understandings that the West will support and to some extent help protect and defend them. But there's no official agreement to send any military whatsoever. It's all exclusively we will support you. Now, what's very interesting is, depending on what happens with the Ukraine and Russia situation, it draws an almost one-to-one -one comparison with the China and Taiwan situation. If Russia is able to take Ukraine with virtually no serious ramifications from outside Ukraine, then China has absolutely no reason to believe that Taiwan would be any different for them. I do wonder about that because China has a much better situation at outlook than Russia does right now. China, the way the global economy is currently structured, benefits China heavily. And they, they, they kind of don't have to rock the boat at this point in order 
victorious over the West, economically speaking, than the East. I think it's actually somewhat interesting right now in retrospect of this past week that Russia actually made this move first. I'm surprised that they didn't, to some extent, pressure or pursue some sort of alliance or agreement with the Chinese government to push China to do this in Taiwan before trying it in Ukraine. And the reason that it's, I find that interesting is because not only is Taiwan a much smaller region than Ukraine is, they're also completely isolated on an island that is far closer to China than any allies that Taiwan may have. Well, and that's what I was going to say. They're not, you know, geopolitically speaking, they're not strategically located near any other country's borders that might come to defend them or might be concerned. In the case of Ukraine, Ukraine is the gateway to Europe from the Russian side. So, of course, all of Western Europe is going to be heavily concerned about this, despite their energy reliance on, uh, on, on Russia. So, in Taiwan's case, they are more globally relevant in the economy that global semiconductor manufacturing occurs in Taiwan heavily. But they are less geostrategically located to where other countries are going to come out very strong rhetorically and say, you know, this is unacceptable. We're going to take strong economic actions here. It's more really, the, I mean, private sector of virtually every developed economy would suffer heavily, though, uh, if Taiwan was taken. Though I don't know how severely, because I think that, you know, when you look at Hong Kong, for example, which, uh, Hong Kong was was set to become fully Chinese territory after a point, anyway, I don't recall the exact year, but China so flagrantly violated the treaty and decided to take Hong Kong early, uh, you know, in violation of their treaty with the British. And that was, that to me was them kind of testing the waters for what is it going to look like if we do this with Taiwan. But I don't know that they need to take over Taiwan necessarily because diplomatically speaking, Taiwan is already considered as part of China, I mean, one China, Policy, yeah, recognized recognized by most uh, UN members. Yeah, I mean by the U.S. as well. But um, it's also kind of interesting because almost for a number of years now, China's kind of been testing the waters on a variety of fronts. Like you were mentioning Hong Kong as well, but also with the outright atrocities they're committing against the um, mispronounces, but the Uyghur people. Uyghur people who are there, but not only that, but they just, not very long ago, I think it was just a couple years ago, they had uh, incursions with the uh, Indian border as well. Oh, I mean, that's that's been happening as recently as on scale. Uh, that's what I mean, like, that's yeah. kind of an ongoing issue that yeah. kind of just pops up every once in a while as far as the media is concerned. They've been more aggressive in that uh, in recent months as well. And, it, you know, I mean, to me, it was always really sad because uh, I lived in India for several years. And we had a large number of Tibetan refugees in the region of Bolivia that I lived in. Uh, well, my roommate, actually, at school was a Tibetan refugee. Um, so I, I got to see firsthand that, you know, globally speaking, when the country is of little global geopolitical value, people don't really care. And people don't really feel inclined to do anything. That country is just seized. It takes, it takes an awful lot for another country to send any type of, you know, military or 
even just generally care that something is happening elsewhere until it becomes their problem as well. Well, and I obviously that's understandable. I mean, I I do not want to go sign up to fight and die to defend Ukraine. I I have a lot of sympathy for their current situation, and I I hope that they can hold their country. Uh, and I, I am okay with you know, some some forms of aid being provided to them in that endeavor. Um, but a lot of people feel that way because we've we've been in so many wars under the guise of in order to bring them democracy to defend defend democratic values, right? And that has you know psychologically it's it's hurt the people of this country because we've seen young men and women go and die in wars to defend foreign soil. While our country deteriorates at home. Well, at the same time, I think it's actually something that's sort of coming back, at least in some circles, where I'm really very pro Ukraine and like I don't want to send our military over there. But at the same time, I'm 100% on board with spend, sending any type of resources, anything that we can spare, really, in order to help and support them as a sovereign nation that has a lot of you know national pride and has a lot of value in being themselves and their own people and that's something that i really love and respect about my nation and like you know i'm not certainly not in any condition to be of use to them on the ground nor am i willing to go over there and fight with them but if something like that were to happen here in the united states i'm certainly not going to run away and I would like to think that there are many people like me and we would stand very similarly, hopefully very similarly, to the grandstand that the Ukrainian people are putting on right now. Well, coming from this country in particular, I think it's it's really hard to understand the situation that smaller your economies are in when they're in situations like this. Because, you know, as much as this country is heavily divided right now, extremely divided, but there would be nothing to unify this country quicker than a foreign invasion, right? If we had a foreign invasion, everyone would be, everyone would be on board with you know, defending the homeland. The perf- perfect example of this in our history was Pearl Harbor. We were not involved in that war at all, other than sending aid to other nations that were our allies at the time. And then one attack, unprovoked, sent our entire country into a frenzy and you know completely unified the entire nation when not that long before that we had a wide variety of anti-war protesters and didn't want any involvement whatsoever was there a heavy anti-war movement uh, prior to vietnam or, uh, so not not um what how should i put this not exclusively anti-war but anti-U.S. involved. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. No, I mean, we were pretty much not involved. It's kind of funny how we take uh, such heavy credit for victory in World War II. <laughs> I mean, we really, it, it depends on who you ask, I yeah. suppose. But to some extent, we were quite instrumental in a number of key areas. But by and large, the war had mostly been fought. And yeah. not to discredit the U.S.'s involvement, because there were a number of our men and women involved, and they did you know, phenomenal support and additional work, especially in Normandy and in the Pacific sure. Arena. But at the same time, the 
French people took the brunt of that well and the overlooked party here because uh, history is written by the victors. It's the Soviets up, uh, but if you will, defending uh, they, they really <laughs> did. And I mean, to their credit, in that war, they were instrumental. They held down an entire side of that conflict, single-handed. Yeah, and, and this kind of ties back into what we're talking about now. But, uh, you know, it could be that Putin was, was well, kind of just thinking, you know, Russia doesn't lose wars in the winter. That's an interesting point that you bring that up because Putin grew up in the 50s and 60s. I mean, not that long after Russia had this series of long-standing victories and widespread pride and support over their nation as a whole before it proceeded to be proceeded to live through effectively the fall of Soviet Union and then subsequently somehow managed to rise to power and stay in power. Yeah. War war has evolved quite a bit since that time. And that's it's really interesting to see somebody launch these types of you know invasions, especially from a nuclear armed state. And that's why this is so concerning and why everybody is very plugged into events because the evolution of war from kinetic warfare in World War One, World War Two, to the advent of you know, the nuclear nuclear weaponry and mutually assured destruction between uh, a factor in war leading into the Cold War. And now we have an entire new theater of conflict and that is and it's kind of always existed, but it's really expanded in scope. You have propaganda by the internet like with interconnectedness globally. You have major propaganda efforts that are able to be a lot more successful and are able to catch like wildfire uh, through virality. And you also have um, just cyber warfare in general. And I, I believe that's one of the threats that was made, one of the more explicit threats that was made by Putin uh, in regards to United States getting involved with as far as uh, troops on the ground or anything further. Um, I think he was ambiguous in some of his threats. He simply said something like, you will see consequences like you've seen in your history or something to that extent. But I believe there were some explicit threats of cyber warfare made. And I think that there has also been a number of people in DC advocating for us to, instead of putting troops on the ground, launch some sort of first strike in the sense of a cyber attack against Russia. Yeah, that's definitely been a point of emphasis, especially in the discussion. And I know uh, Vladimir Putin has mentioned it a number of times, that that is an area that they would use as recourse against anyone for assisting Ukraine in any real capacity. And it's a very interesting concept. It's not something that's been available in previous global conflicts such as this. And it's this new age of war that is essentially ever present, but not ever really focused on in any damaging way. So traditionally, I mean, since 2000s and the dot-com era and really the advent of the internet at large, the cyber threat has primarily been information gathering. And so nations like Russia and China and even the US and British and other nations in Europe will focus 
focus their cyber efforts on intelligence network and information gathering. So for example, European nations and the United States would be focused on the Kremlin. The Kremlin would be focused on CIA or the Pentagon, for example, and China as well, and various other forces for you know, MI5 for the British, CIA for us as well. But it's very interesting that he would almost give out such a vague threat while at the same time very specifically targeting a theater of war that hasn't been utilized in that way before. Well, I think the vague threat was more for uh, knowing that U.S. media would publish that widely and European media as well, kind of ins inspiring some fear of a nuclear first strike potentially, uh, which I think is extremely unlikely, but it's definitely uh, sort of a uh, fear and psychological deterrence that he's attempting to use, especially quite a good effect in this era of the internet and propaganda. But what's really interesting is from a technical perspective, it is extremely difficult to successfully execute cyber attacks at large. So the intelligence gathering operations that you're talking about, I think that's what was exposed in the Snowden leaks, correct? Like that we were even spying on our allies heavily and that they were doing the same to us. Just that's, that's just constant, something that is always going on. Yes. So attempting security and data breaches. Absolutely. And something that's very telling about the world at large, especially for myself, having been you know, educated as a computer engineer and software in general, is the theory that this could happen is already a definitive proof for me just in study. Like before Snowden leaks happened, this was common knowledge to me really, that you would spy on whoever. The information is there and there's nothing stopping you from getting. There's no legal ramification. There's no search warrant required in most of these cases. And in the, in the nature of geopolitical forces, there's absolutely no negative to attempting to gain access to as much information as you possibly can. One of the oldest ideas in any ruling entity is it is far better for you to understand your friends and allies' weaknesses than it is to wait for them to be exposed. And oftentimes, your friends or allies aren't fully aware of their own weaknesses. So it's also a point of being a good friend or ally in the case of nations to point out, hey, we found this vulnerability and this weakness. We think you should not mention that, you know, we got a bunch of information while we found it kind of thing. But that's just generally accepted to some extent as the cost of doing business. But at the same time, do you think we would share that kind of information though? Because would that not be revealing so essentially the sources and methods that depends. we use to obtain that information? It depends. So uh, in the case of the United States, we may offer this information to the British government, for example. It is likely more along the lines of we would, after the fact, we would set up a sort of joint training exercise like we do with the military, where we'll 
effectively send over, you know, battleships and even like whole battalions sometimes and actually run test exercises with them. The same thing happens in cyberspace. So we would set up an event where the NSA or CIA or what have you have a joint training exercise with MI5 or the other branches of the um, British government's intelligence network where we would actually attempt to specifically penetrate certain systems. So we would kind of gently suggest. Right. Okay, okay. And, and similarly, it's generally understood that they would do the same with us. Understand. And so this is not common knowledge. It's not the kind of thing that we want to tell people when it's happening. Because then we might have other forces like that's a good, you know, that's a good reason or opportunity, I should say, or Russia or China to take advantage of that and put more effort into that. But any reasonable government official is not at all confused by the fact that every single second of every single day of every single year, China and Russia are attempting to hack the CIA, the Pentagon, the NSA, and to some extent, and I'm not privy to what extent, but the CIA and NSA and similar agencies are attempting to do the same back to them. So the cyber warfare happens. It is a part of life that is constant. I think the elements of that that people are more afraid of is that critical infrastructure might be targeted. Can you shed some light on the feasibility of, say, power grid shut down by a foreign adversary. Sure. So I'll do my best. The, the key thing to understand, is, particularly in cyber warfare, is there are a number of ways to negatively affect a system, as I'll call it. And so ne by negatively affect a system, either gain access and control or be able to likewise stop it from functioning. So typically, Hollywood in particular, and generally speaking, the media likes to portray this as the entire power grid being shut down or someone taking control of all the street lights in a city and being able to completely, basically lock down all traffic in a city. That's complete BS. Like, the, in order You're to- telling me that Die Hard wasn't real? <laughs> yeah, Die Hard took some serious liberties. But so, in particular, it is certainly possible, and that is certainly a fear. But in order to take over a system to that level requires an intimate knowledge of the system itself. Now, the key problem that people point to is that the modern operating systems that computers use, like Windows or Linux or Apple OS, like these are commonly used across the world now as you know Microsoft and Apple are global companies effectively. And so these systems can be common knowledge to anyone who takes the time. Now, every single system that is used is built on top of it. So you have different layers of software that are constantly being developed and layered on top of previous layers of software. And so, for example, when you get to infrastructure, like the power grid, the 
power grid has been in existence for a long time at this point, 50 plus years. And so when you consider someone trying to hack some system like that, theoretically, it's possible that they could gain access to an administrator's account purely by brute forcing the password. That's entirely possible. And by brute forcing the password, I mean they send guesses and slightly change the password each time until they happen across the right answer and get a login into the system that they don't already have. With, that's, with that, real quick, how are they able to query that system that many times without identifying that the number of times that it's being attempted is itself? So that is commonly the security measure that is used. So, for example, with your phone, if you try to use your fingerprint reader on your phone, I believe it's four, four or five times by default. If you fail four or five times, it will lock you out yeah. and you will not be able to use your fingerprint anymore. Every enterprise level software I've ever used in the manufacturing sector operated. So that is the most common and I would say the most effective solution at slowing them down. Now, the key problem is it only slows them down because at some point you have to unlock it in order for the people who need to access it to maintain it actually still need to do that. Isn't that typically a manual process done by the company that manages so that, that software? Tip, traditionally, it was a manual process. Over time, they have automated aspects of it. And so this is where intimate knowledge of the system essential because the eastern power grid in the United States is not directly equivalent to the western power grid. They are quite similar and they share a lot of things as they build and grow their infrastructures, but they are not identical. And the logins required for one will not log you into the other. And to some extent, there has been a variety of public domain projects, the government-assisted projects, so that in the event where one of these power grids go down, one of the other power grids, typically the one next to it, can facilitate and help manage some of the more key infrastructural systems so that communications networks, for example, don't go down. Now, this would still heavily affect individual people in their lives. Yeah, so for example, like, let's just say for the worst case scenario that the Eastern power grid were to be hacked and they shut it down. This is a remote cyber attack in this case. Right. Most of what we're discussing here is remote cyber attacks, I should clarify that. But in the event that the entire eastern seaboard lost power, the, I believe it's the central grid, would help pick up some of the slack. And the first thing that would come back would be military and communications infrastructure. So the Pentagon's not going to be out without power, yeah. for example. I mean, they also have generators and other means for essential structures. Such I would as that. hope so. <laughs> they do. And there, there are a variety of procedures and other, uh, yeah, well, procedures and manuals in place in order to affect that. However, due to the fact that these systems have been in existence for so long, the remote access and control that is typically used to maintain these systems is purely done out of convenience. Now, there are instances where you lose some features and aspects, but the general concept and idea 
is even if an administrator logged in and shut down all the power that they had access to, there is there are manual switches and overrides at various substations and these hubs at large in order to override that. You're talking about analog redundancy systems. Yes. So these are lower level in that software structure I mentioned building. There are also hardware levels, especially when it comes to power and communications infrastructures. So for example, in order to truly shut down the Eastern power grid for the United States, you have to either physically go there and manually interrupt the power transmission, or you have to log in and then the manual transmission still would override so even if Russia did get access, the power would be down for minutes before somebody could actually physically go there. And typically there's people on staff who are at the power station and these critical hubs, I should say. Well, that's pretty reassuring to hear that we have systems in place to prevent you know, any type, type of long-term crippling of our systems through uh, cyber attack. 